I suppose I'm going to talk about what you might think of as the, the microeconomics or the micro rationale underlying some of these provocative ideas that, that we've heard. Surely a key question for all of us as, as scholars, as, just as individuals, certainly as policymakers and politicians, would be the question, are we, as a, a giant group, heading in a good direction? If we are, fine. I mean, we certainly teach our students that there's a lot of sensible things going on. There's plenty of economic growth. People maximize their utility. They behave rationally and so on. However, th these are ultimately empirical issues. And we need to know the answer to that question. I'm going to show you growing evidence that it, it's not the case that our society is heading in a sensible direction. And as has partly been said before, I'm going to tackle it in a slightly different way. A key aspect of the problem is that we compare ourselves in the domain of income, uh, pay domain in life, at least to others all the time. This is a curse of being human. There, there are undoubtedly good things about being human, but uh, this one is, is not among the nice list. It turns out, though, that humans care in an absolute sense about green environmental factors. So roughly speaking, I'm going to go into detail, you can think of the punchline from this short talk as being humans invest in our kinds of society far too much effort into making money we're all trying to run ahead of our comrades, but of course they're doing the same. We're caught in what an economic theorist would call a kind of disadvantageous Nash equilibrium, a sort of rat race, you might say. We chase rank, which is a perfectly rational thing for us each to do as a person, but if all my neighbors are doing the same, then we very probably expend far too much effort as a community. And this is, our, this is our model. You know economists love models of the economy. This is, this is uh, our model of society is stuck in this equilibrium. Everyone's working very hard, but the group is not getting anywhere. I love his mobile phone, don't you? It's a big, big old-fashioned one. Uh, instead, the data suggests, I want to stick to the data because when people talk about happiness, it's easy to get carried away with a lot of waffle, frankly. So let's try and stick to what appears to be true empirically. I think it's fair to say the data support the idea that we should concentrate as a giant community in the West on environmental quality. That is, if we care about raising the mental well-being of ourselves and our children and our great-great-great-great-grandchildren, not on economic prosperity. I'm going to line myself up, approximately speaking, though we must always keep a an open mind scientifically with the Easterlin paradox, which tells us that growth is not, despite all the textbooks, going to make us cheerier with our lives, despite what all the prime ministers and chancellors of the exchequer in the world say. Why would you believe any of this? I'll describe very briefly evidence from MRI scanners and from statistical work on um, micro data sets, random samples of individuals. But let me start with everyday empirical evidence. I've just taken mine off, actually. Consider your wrist. You don't often see this sentence in an economics lecture. Uh, this is a watch. It has a black strap, a white face, a silver surround, and silver hands. This watch keeps perfect time. We now have the technology to within a few seconds a year. We might as well call this a perfect timekeeper. You can also dive, if you're capable of doing such a thing, to 20 meters in this watch. I'm probably not capable of that. You can buy this watch on the internet if you want tonight when you go home. 
for five euros. Here's another watch. This watch has a black strap, it has a white face, it has a silver surround, it has silver hands. It has the slight disadvantage that it's a little bit difficult to read the time because of the background markings. But it has the great advantage that if you slump into a coma over your economics homework tonight and wake up in January in the Warwick Hospital, it will be able to tell you which month you've actually woken up in. You can buy this watch on the internet tonight when you go home for 500,000 euros. Watches are an incredibly interesting commodity for economists because, especially men's watches, they really only have one function, and that is a timekeeping function. So there, there really is a sense in which we compare the, can compare the utilitarian value, the usefulness of these two things. I can buy what is essentially I hope you don't think this too bold a claim. What is essentially the same commodity for either five euros or 500,000 euros. And almost all of economics would say that's impossible. And yet, you can check the internet tonight. Here's a Rolex advert that I thought was fascinating when I came upon it. I still think it's fascinating. A watch defines a man's look and tone. A watch defines a man's look and tone. What could that sentence possibly mean? <laughs> you know, it's just quite extraordinary. Uh, I'll show you the picture that goes with that strap line, and there it is. <laughs> See, the point of showing these pictures, at some level, you know all of this. I'm not surprising you at, at all. But the point of, of this is, whatever is being sold here in modern society, it's nothing to do with timekeeping at all. Indeed, we all carry mobile phones and computers that tell us the time. We have to make sense of that. Whatever kind of social scientist or even medical scientist or, or whatever you are, we have to presumably have a story that uh, creates a logical structure in which these events can occur, because they clearly do. The only one I can think of is that subconsciously humans are, are frightened of falling behind, and that's what all these watches are about. It's nothing at all to do with the principles of utility maximization because, according to first-year economics, we need to look at our watch that tells the time to get to the lectures and make our money or whatever it is. It's really nothing to do with that at all. All this links to very exciting new empirical work. I haven't got the time today to do justice to any of that. Some is by Armin Falk, who works at the University of Bonn. A recent paper has just come out in the American Economic Review by Peter Kuhn, who studies very interesting data, randomized data on lottery wins, and he shows that if your neighbor, let's say Andrew Clark, wins the lottery, then I am more likely to buy a new car. <laughs> you got that? Uh, a young man called Ori Hefetz, a very good economist at Cornell, is studying the visibility of goods and showing that people respond tremendously to how visible my watch is, or my necklace, or my Jaguar, or whatever it be. And an incredibly innovative, very simple paper has just come out by David Card and colleagues at Berkeley and elsewhere, where they, in the University of California system, because it's now uh, mandated that every salary should be public knowledge, uh, they ran an experiment where they randomly sent an email to half of the members of the University of California informing them that there was a website that they could go to if they wanted to find out what their co-workers earn. Okay. Half, the, half their subjects had that email. The other half, of course, were a control group and got no email, and then they studied the job satisfaction. 
and they found that people who discovered they were uh, paid below the average were extraordinarily unhappy with that. Now you might think economists should have learned this a long time ago, but uh, their study is a particularly nicely defined randomized experiment where it turned out that discovering you were above the average created almost no happiness in their data. Finding that you are below average created a great deal of unhappiness and hugely raised the quit rate from the University of California section. Very briefly, I'd recommend this work. Armin Falk is one of the key authors of the science paper, a recent paper in the Journal of Public Economics. The bottom line is very simple. We can now look inside the brain. These experiments lay two people down in MRI scanners, and they both won money or did a task where they, were, they had some earnings then they were, in different kinds of ways, informed about the other person's earnings. What Armin and his colleagues showed in the jargon is this, that the part of the brain that is engaged in primary rewards, the part of the brain that is enjoying things, showed up uh, as being very sensitive to the relative rewards. The mere fact of outperforming Mr. Clark positively affects my reward-related brain activity. This is, in principle, the key missing micro-foundation to the Easterlin paradox and to many, many ideas that have been promoted by social scientists, Veblen and Duesenberg and many others through the years, including, by the way, by a man called Fred Hirsch, who is a professor here who died tragically early. For the specialists here, uh, these are some of the blood oxygenation equations estimated by Falk and his colleagues. Although it's a shock, I think one day these kinds of equations will be written in the first chapter of undergraduate economics textbooks. That's what I, I'm prepared to predict. I don't know the timing. So this is telling us, I suppose you might say very loosely, the reward activation coming from. Uh, these are regressions to be read vertically. My own income, that comes in positive. I'm looking at the 0 0.916. The other's income coming in strongly negative. And in a lot of these... Uh, tests, the numbers in absolute terms were rather close to being equal and opposite. Why would I care about equal and opposite, say, 327 and 353? Well, that's saying that there might be a pure relative wage effect. That is, if everything, if both these are going up at the same t speed, there'll be com complete neutralization. I remind you, this is nothing to do with asking people how happy they are. It's nothing to do with standardized mental stress or psychological health scores. Deep inside your brain, you just want to be high up the monkey pack. That, this is what that kind of experiment is telling us. We have a lot of uh, statistical evidence coming from well-being equations. I can be brief here because Andrew in particular has alluded to those. When we measure happiness or life satisfaction or job satisfaction or mental health by a, a so-called GHQ score or the rest, we find that my income divided by your income, that works much more strongly than merely my income if you're trying to understand my mental well-being. So there's the idea. I'm sorry. Now, green factors, I'm going to mean this in the broadest sense, but I'll concentrate just on air quality before I stop. Uh, green factors are not like this. Insofar as we can tell, I doubt if the green movement even understand this or understand the research that's being done on it anyway. 
we get absolute pleasure, you might say, not relativistic pleasure from uh, green variables. And it, it's because of this that ultimately our society will have to turn away, I don't know what the form will take, from the mores, the norms that we currently live by, I reckon. Uh, these kinds of studies follow people. They don't ask them how they feel about the environment. They ask them about their happiness and mental health and life satisfaction and so on. And then they link back to what has been happening when they're interviewed in the environment. So a very talented man called Levinson in the US got daily happiness data on randomly sampled Americans. Then he measured the uh, sulfur dioxide and other gases in the air that day in their region. And he showed that as the gases go up and down, they, they're probably not even aware of this, the, the individuals, as these gases go up and down, that registers very strongly on their reported happiness levels. This is after he's adjusted for income, marriage, and the other things that we know matter. These coefficients are extremely large. Improving our air quality for us as individuals would have a much bigger effect than even an extremely generous pay rise from the University of Warwick, even though none of us thinks that. We're not brought up to believe that. Our textbooks do not teach that. Uh, finally, Professor Eastland's paradox, you've had it explained to you. In countries like the US, maybe the archetypal capitalist nation, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, I just mean in a literal sense. Uh, happiness has not improved for the last 40 or 50 years, and of course there has been growth. We see this kind of pattern today is not the data go slowly across many countries. And there's some evidence of worsening mental health. If you know about GHQ scores, and we have some medical professors in the audience I know, in journals like the British Journal of General Practice, in psychological medicine, if you look around, and I've spent some time doing that, there are comparable longitudinal data sets which show not just an Easterlin effect, but by the standards of these psychological morbidity tests, a worsening through time. Just finally, what about young people? I'm a fan of the work of somebody called Helen Sweeting at Glasgow. I'm afraid I've never met her. She's done really rather sensible, painstaking work looking at 15-year-olds in Scotland, measuring their mental health. I'm being loose in my language here. And these are comparable 15-year-olds sampled in very different years. And this is not good news for our country. We can object to it, we can close our minds to it, we can argue about the measures, but this is not good news. To sum up, uh, Although this is a bit of fun, of course, in part, I, I also mean it completely seriously. It seems to me we are stuck as a society with this kind of vision, and, and we have the power, if we just sit back and think, think about the evidence, many different kinds of the evidence, we are in control of our lives. We have the power to do something about it. It's my opinion it's time to do that. I think we need more time with our friends, more time drinking. I don't know whether you can see <laughs> Easton and Oswald in the middle there. Is our society going in a sensible direction? I'm afraid I think the answer is that it's not. Thank you very much. <laughs>